0: Welcome to the Westminster Chapel Podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Welcome to the Westminster Chapel Podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk.
1: Please go to page 966. It is Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 12, the visit of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Father, thank you that you speak to us through your word. We pray that you would speak through Howard. We pray that we take the true message home tonight. Amen. Amen.
2: Man, thank you very much. Thanks, Liam. What a fabulous T-shirt that was! Wow. <laughs> and first time reading, I think as well. So brilliant job, very impressive. Um, welcome to Westminster Chapel. Uh, my name is Howard. It's my privilege to lead a great team at this historic uh, church. Happy Christmas to you all. I hope you're having a great Christmas season. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Uh, That's great. We've been in a three-part series. It's been called Inclusive Christmas. So if you're new, uh, I just want to catch you up a little bit so you know what we're we're doing. Um, uh, So we did it three parts. We started two weeks ago. We looked at the story of, of Mary, this young woman, very poor, from Nazareth, this kind of backwater town in Galilee, let alone in the whole of Israel. Yet God includes her in the Christmas story. Incredible privilege. And then last week at the carol service, it was Pretty amazing. Eight hundred and fifty people packed packed our evening that we had. We looked at the stinky social outcasts, the shepherds, and were kind of amazed that they're brought into the Christmas story as well. Today, I tell you, we may have the most surprising guests of all. Um, you probably already know what's coming from the Bible reading, but uh, I knew them growing up as we three kings of Orient. Ah, well, I thought it was orientar, uh, but it's part of a song uh, growing up. Uh, and what's surprising is we're a bit mistaken about these, the, the, these, these, these people, these, these men, because it turns out that they probably weren't kings. Um, The word for them in the ancient manuscripts is is the word magi, and it probably more likely means a a wise man. They were men wise in uh, astrology. They were pagan star worshippers, like court officials that kings would go to for their advice out in the east, out out in Persia. So we're mistaken a little bit about what they are. We're also probably mistaken about there being three of them. Um, the Bible doesn't say that there were three of them. The Bible says uh, these ancient manuscripts that there were there were three gifts given: gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, but that probably was just a summary description of a great sort of honouring gift to, like, a dignitary's giving of gifts to Jesus, the one born King of the Jews. So we can make a lot of mistakes about. Christmas and the Christmas story, and in preparing this message, I went online and I read an article in the Insider about all the mistakes that we can make about Christmas. So I thought, we've got three days left, it may be too late for some of you, uh, <laughs> but I just thought I should share a few more mistakes about Christmas that we can make to protect you um, from making them, maybe not this year if you've done them like me already, but for next year. So the first of those is obvious re-gifting. Um, that is where you give somebody else what they gave you last year and you forget about it and they realize it and you're like, ah, this is awkward. <laughs> it's, not, it's not very good. Uh, and another mistake to make would be having too much fun at the office Christmas party. Uh, I shall say no more. Uh, a further mistake would be to talk about Brexit, I think, at the Christmas dinner table. Um, maybe the election results? Awkward! <laughs> um, another mistake, I'm sorry if you do this, um, would be to get all of the members of your family to dress in exactly the same outfit and to pose together in front of the Christmas tree for your annual photograph. Anybody want to admit doing that? No? <laughs> I'm not surprised now. A bit, bit cheesy. Um, his mistake, I really hope you haven't done this one, that is to gift somebody a diet cookbook or a gym membership for Christmas without them asking. Um, because that, that has an inference, by the way. You, like you're basically saying, you're overweight, you're, you're fat. I think you oh, Anyway, don't do that sort of thing. Um, hey, the biggest mistake you can make about Christmas of all, I think would be to miss the real meaning of Christmas. What Christmas is really about. We've just heard this story from an ancient first century biography story about. Jesus, about the the wise men and how far they traveled. They traveled from Persia all the way to Jerusalem. That's hundreds of miles through difficult terrain just so that they could be part of the original Christmas story, so they could meet Jesus. It says that they came to find the one born King of the Jews so they could bow down and worship him and give them gifts. How did they come? They came by following a star. There was something special you see about Jesus that you would travel that far to go and see him. But also that creation itself, a star, is guiding these wise men all the way on this extraordinary long journey. Now you might think, how you lost me? Guiding stars? That's impossible. That's a fairy tale. Well, hold on a minute. Let's just, let's just think about that. What's more impossible, a guided star or an unguided universe? What's more impossible, a virgin birth or a virgin cosmos? Because I don't think you could get something very easily from nothing. And I don't believe that nothing could be defined as quantum fields and forces and things like that. That's still something to me. I want to know where did that something that started everything off come from? I think it's easier to believe that something began the universe rather than nothing began at all rather than just to say, oh, it just happened. Poof, magic. Now, that may be more like a fairy story, that. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, what maybe? Most amazing of all is that these wise men were invited by God to be part of the Christmas story, as they were pagan foreigners, just query our honest attitude to immigrants individually and as a nation at this time. More than that, they they were also people of another belief system, religion, worldview, Yet they're invited. So for me, I made a big mistake about the Christian faith. Growing up, wasn't a Christian. I became a Christian crossed the line of faith when I was 21 years old. But I thought in the, in the lead up to that, I was so confused. I thought that to become a Christian, you had to be a good person. And I didn't think I was as bad as Adolf Hitler. Okay. <laughs> but I didn't think I was as good as Mother Teresa. I knew I wasn't that great, and so how am I gonna make it Make it to, to be a Christian? I don't know if I could be included. I don't think God wants me. I don't think he's interested in, in me, but worse than all of that, I was into Buddhism and Taoism, not Jesus. I was into Tai Chi. I arrived at university having spent some time in Malaysia studying Tai Chi. That, believe it or not, is a much, much younger and more handsome version of me. Um, took a long time to edit that on Photoshop. Um, <laughs> I was—I arrived. at you know, doing that Tai Chi. I can still do some of the forms and things like that. Uh, all that stuff. I wasn't just doing it for like you thinking now. This is elderly relaxation technique. How many people think that? What is he doing like that? Actually, that's the Western mistake about Tai Chi. Um, it's actually a weaponized, pretty serious, aggressive martial art out in the East. And uh, by the way, just to get me some cool points back up there. <laughs> uh, okay, so, so I, I was into all of that. I was just like, totally like, I, I was as far from God as you could pretty much get. Yet at a carol service at the turn of the millennium, a young, me, arrogant law student, I heard for the first time the message of Christmas. And it was like God had suddenly given me my star, my clue, things I'd never really understood about this Christmas story before, of the person of Jesus, that I started to think, "That's really interesting. I want to follow those, clues. Where does that lead? No one told me this before. I'm 21 years old, and I didn't understand this. Wow. And I started to follow and I started to follow. But anyway, I am digressing. Let's get back to uh, the story. The wise men, the wise men. They were on their way to Bethlehem. They arrive at Bethlehem. But have you ever wondered what would have happened if they were wise women? I think they would have shown up on time. (laughs) You may not know this. It's one of the creative sort of things about the nativity scene. I love the nativity scene. I think that is great. But the wise men were almost certainly minimum several months late, up to a maximum of two years late for the birth of Jesus. Jesus. If they'd been wise women, they would have arrived on time because they would have been humble enough to at least ask for directions so they didn't get lost on the way. They would have bought more sensible practical gifts, I think, like maybe some food or some nappies or wet wipes or whatever the equivalent is in the first century. But they didn't. They, these wise men were not wise in that sense. But they were wise in the right sense that they followed the clues that the Creator God had given them to find their way. To Jesus. But you might be here and you're sort of saying, well, God hasn't given me a star in the sky. Uh, well, maybe you're kind of being a little bit too literal about that. <laughs> um, he might have given you some other clues. Creation. You're here. You're alive. How did you get here? How does this world exist? Where did it come from? Does it have a message for us that it's telling us about the nature, even the character, the, the being of, of the God who made it? Yes, it's been damaged and distorted. Maybe that reveals that there's some kind of cosmic warfare going on, but good ultimately triumphs over evil. Oh, What about your conscience? That there is some kind of oughtness, some right way of living absolutely in the world around you, but it isn't just out there that there's ultimate good and evil, right and wrong, but it's inside here. Or what about history? God has allowed for the story of his coming to enter history. It's not some private dream or revelation. It's entering into history. It's historical, so there are documents First century documents that go all the way back that that tell us about Jesus. Clues for us to investigate and follow. Do you know when I was 21 years old, I had no idea of the amount of evidence that there is for the Christian faith. I was a law student as well, it was embarrassing. I didn't know, for example, that there's more than 24,000 New Testament fragmentary documents and, and, and some of them pretty, pretty complete and substantial that go all the way back that to the first century that get us pretty much exactly to the original text of what was said about what happened. That means there's no argument, as I thought, this is just legendary embellishment. This, things get made up later, you know, passed down one generation to another, like the game you know, Chinese Whispers, or if you're American, Telephone, and it gets lost along the way uh, of transmission. No, this is, this is the story right at the outset, right at the beginning that we've got. Oh, wow, what are you really saying here, Howard? Are you saying that the Christian faith is different from all other belief systems and religions? Are you saying that it's a set apart, one above? Yeah, I I suppose actually that I I am saying that. I am actually saying that the Christian faith that we understand in the story of of Christmas is the truth. Wow. You might be here and you're thinking, I am just about ready to stone this guy. How dare he say that? So arrogant. Well, I'm honestly—I'm—I'm I'm not arrogant in that sense. I think I am as rubbish as anybody else is. <laughs> By the way, if you're here, if you come regularly, you'll discover that on Sundays, <laughs> from the pulpit and in person. But you might think that I still think he's arrogant, maybe in, even intolerant. And you are reaching for something to literally hurl at me right now. Well, just hold fire, um, just for a moment, because I'd like us to watch this video uh, and see if that changes your mind a little bit.
3: In AD 203, the Roman government arrested a 22-year-old woman, a Christian named Perpetua. The problem wasn't so much that she worshipped Jesus. Her crime was that she worshipped only Jesus. She refused to worship any other gods. As a result, she was found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. This dangerous idea that Christ alone provides the way to God is called Christian Particularism, and it is as scandalous today as it was 2000 years ago. Religious pluralism, on the other hand, is the view that all the world's religions are equally valid, and Christ is just one of many ways. Some religious pluralists say all the world's religions teach basically the same thing, so they are all true. But this is clearly mistaken. The major religions often contradict each other. For example, compare Islam and Buddhism. Muslims believe there is a personal God who created the world. Man is sinful and will spend eternity in heaven or hell. And salvation is attained by faith and performing good works. But Buddhists deny all of this. They believe that ultimate reality is not a person. The world was not created. Man is not sinful. Man is not an enduring self, and the goal of life is not salvation, it's annihilation. Because these two worldviews contradict each other, they can't both be true. In fact, every major world religion contradicts every other one, so they can't possibly all be true. So other religious pluralists will say all the world's religions are false they're equally valid, but equally false, cultural expressions of mankind's search for truth. But why think that this is true? Why couldn't one particular religion be true? When you examine the arguments for religious pluralism, you find that some of them are textbook examples of logical fallacies. For example, anyone who believes that Christianity is true and every other view is wrong is arrogant. Therefore, Christianity is false. This is a logical fallacy called argument ad hominem, trying to show someone's view is false by attacking his personal character. This is a logical fallacy because the truth of a view is independent of the character of the person who holds it. For example, if an arrogant person discovered the cure for cancer, the fact that he's egotistical would not mean his claim was false and you wouldn't refuse treatment just because he was conceited. Moreover, this objection is a double-edged sword, for the pluralist also believes that his view is true and that everyone else is wrong. Therefore, if you're arrogant for holding to a view which many others disagree with, then the pluralist himself would be guilty of arrogance. Here's another pluralist argument. Religions are culturally relative. If you had been born in Pakistan, you'd likely be a Muslim. But if you've been born in Ireland, you'd probably be a Catholic. Because religious beliefs are culturally relative, they are not objectively true. This is an example of the genetic fallacy, trying to invalidate a view by showing how a person came to hold the view. This is a fallacy because the truth of a view is independent of how a person came to believe it. For example, If you had been born in ancient Greece, you would have believed that the sun goes around the earth. Does that make your current belief that the earth goes around the sun false or unjustified? No. Furthermore, this objection is also a double-edged sword. For if the religious pluralist had been born in Pakistan or Ireland, he'd likely have been a religious particularist. So his belief in religious pluralism is just the result of his being born in contemporary Western society, and therefore is not objectively true. Getting these fallacious objections out of the way helps to reveal a more serious objection to Christian particularism, the problem of those who have never heard of Christ. If Jesus is the only way to God, then what is the fate of those who never hear of Jesus? Is there no hope for them? The answer is, there is hope for those who've never heard. The Bible says that God loves all people and wants everyone to come to Him and find eternal life. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus.
2: It's a very helpful video, but let me ask you another question. Why, why do you think um, these wise men, it looked, if you look at the passage, verse 10, that they were overjoyed? Why do they travel such a distance to, to, to meet Jesus? Why do they give him such precious gifts? Why are they so excited about the, the whole thing? Well, I think we find another clue in the passage. If we have a look at verse 6, um, you can see it there. It's a quotation that we have there in verse 6 from the first part of the Bible. We call that the Old Testament. It was finished up to about 400 years before the birth of of Jesus, which begins the New Testament story. And this is from a a prophet called uh, Micah, writing hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And he says about they're expecting someone. The whole of this kind of uh, writings of the Old Testament are talking about the anticipation of a promised one, a Messiah, a Christ-like anointed figure who's going to come and bring goodness and hope to the world. He's coming. And what's fascinating is that that is where Jesus is born. It predicts Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. And Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And it requires a census from the Roman emperor, Augustus Caesar, <laughs> to, to ensure that that happens so that people have to go back to register where their line, their ancestral line is from. And Joseph's line is David. That's Bethlehem. So he has to journey from Nazareth. That's where they, Jesus would have been born if they'd stayed there. But no, he's born in Bethlehem. These are extraordinary predictions in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills. And he fulfills more than 300 of them and 29 of them in a single day. That's hard to compute. You might be thinking, like, maybe he's just a clever con man. Maybe he worked out what these predictions were, because they were written before him, and he went about living his life to try and fulfill them, to make a name for himself. It wasn't a great name. He got crucified, by the way, before he was raised from the dead. But there's so many of them. It's just an impossible task. 300 before planes, trains, automobiles, and they're about things beyond your control, like your birth. Let's have a look at a few more of them from a man called Isaiah. He wrote... uh, a wonderful 66 letter in the Old Testament. Uh, and we actually have found a copy preserved in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's found in the 1940s. It's been radiocarbon dated to at least 100 years before Jesus was born. So it wasn't made up after Jesus. It wasn't like, this is how Jesus lived. Now we've made up these prophecies to try and make that. No, 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 there's, there's a gap. That's the most conservative. Dating, what does it say? Well, it talks about his birth. For unto us a child is born. That's interesting. The birth of Jesus. Unto us a son is given. Not just any child, but he's the son of God. And on him, on him will be the government on his shoulders. The kingdom, the rule, the authority, a new way of living on him and he will have a name. And that name will be Wonderful Counselor. What does that mean? That means that he can empathize with us, he can understand us, he can relate to us. How? Because God took on human flesh, that he's walked through the life that we've had, that he knows you better than you know yourself. Mighty God, that he's the most powerful being in the world and his power is revealed by becoming so Weak yet not out of control as a baby. Everlasting Father. He is the giver of eternal life. We'll see that in the resurrection when Christmas becomes the Easter story. And he's the Prince of Peace. He is the one who comes to deal with the barrier, the great divide between us and God that comes from our wrongdoing and the bad stuff we do. We call it sin that cuts us off and separates us from God and separates us from other people when we do wrong that, that, that breaks and damages our relationships. That's the prediction about his birth. And then there's an amazing prediction about his death. It comes in chapter 53 of Isaiah's writings, let me read it to you. Speaking of Jesus in anticipation of his death 700 years before, he writes, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced, pierced through his hands, his feet, through his side, For our transgressions, our wrongdoing, he was crushed on the cross for our iniquities, our sin. The punishment that brings us peace, it was upon him so that by his wounds we become healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We're all rebels trying to live independently of God And the Lord laid on him, on Jesus, at the cross the iniquity, the sin, the wrongdoing of us all. To rephrase one of the famous carols that we sung, Jesus God was born to die that man might no more die. Born to raise sons and daughters through faith in him. Jesus, God himself, comes to deal with our sin, the problem, the blockage in our relationship with God and our sin, our shame, our wrongdoing, our evil, the darkness of our hearts, all of that, the bad stuff and all of the good stuff we should do that we never really do, all the judgment and the that comes on him. He experiences death, separation, he's crushed so that we get to experience love and forgiveness and hope and freedom and joy and life and to know a God who would go through all of that Us that we might have access to him and perfect fellowship, relationship with him. Somehow the wise man understood something of the significance of this, that this one long promised who was going to come to undo the curse of evil and darkness in our world, he was arriving, the one born, the king of Jews, and they would do anything to get to see him. The answer to evil, the answer to suffering, the answer to sin, the answer to death. The answer to ultimate despair there before them as a baby. And we can follow the clues too. We can know the joy that they had as we seek to go on the journey that they went on. But one more thing before uh, we come to a conclusion and finish. It's in verse 12. It's an interesting final verse to this passage and it says that these wise men returned to their country but by another route by a different way it can be translated as well That's literally true. They did. They took a different route, so they would avoid conflict with Herod. And they didn't want to do that, the the, the kind of evil king at that time. They avoided that. That was literally accurate. But I think the writer, inspired by God as he's writing, is saying, they actually went back a different way because they'd become different people inside. Because verse 11 says, All of these clues came true and the moment they see Jesus, they're overwhelmed and they bow down and they worship him and they give them precious gifts. They're offering really not just these gifts, but their lives to him, to follow him. They become different in that moment because they had Jesus. But they didn't renounce their culture. They didn't say, we're never going back that way again. No, 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 they went back to their country, and they were going to live differently within that country because Christianity is not a product of culture. It transcends it. I love the way um, a brilliant writer, a brilliant man, Laminsana, he's he's an African professor at Yale University in America, and in a book, Whose Religion is Christianity, he, he said this, Africans sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or their clamour for an invincible saviour. So they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the sky. After that dance, the stars weren't little anymore. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. The point is that the Christian faith is not some kind of cultural straitjacket. It doesn't say to become a Christian you've got to follow these rules about what you can eat, can't eat, what you can wear, where you can go, do all of that. It's not about external conformity to, to anything like that. It's about internal transcendency and a, a living relationship with God Himself. Christianity, in this sense, is not a product of culture, it's above culture. It can be Africanized, Chineseified, Europeanized without diluting its ultimate truth claims. And it has been, all over the world. That, I think, is a good argument for its, its, its truthfulness. But also, more importantly, I think, is an expression of its inclusivity. That you're not barred. Whatever culture you're from, whatever background you're from, Like me, however bad you may be, however far off, whatever you're doing, however unworthy, insignificant, however ugly you might feel inside your heart. Jesus, God is saying, you're welcome, come. You're invited, whether you're a Mary, a shepherd, or the wise men. You have a place in the Christmas story. You can come, you can know there's joy, you can be overjoyed with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. But how? How? You've got to do what the wise men did. Verse 11. There must be a moment where you humbly bow down in your heart and you worship him as God. That's the way into a relationship of faith and trust. That's what the Christmas story is all about. I don't know where you are here today. You might be right at the start of that journey. Like the wise men, you might have just seen the star for the first time. That's how it was for me at the carol service I mentioned that I attended. But maybe you've been following the clues for some time and you're a little bit further on. Maybe you're even as far at the moment that you're, you're at, the, at the place where Jesus is and you want to bow your heart and you want to say, yes, <laughs> this is real. That's wonderful. We'd love to help you, love to serve you wherever you're at. I'll be here at the end of the service, uh, just at the front here to talk and pray with anybody who wants help wherever you're at. But here's the thing, you've got an opportunity and an invitation from God himself through the Christmas story that you can leave this way different. And you can go to wherever you're from, wherever you're in the city, whatever you do, totally different, with joy inside you, because you've got Jesus, because you know him, because he knows you. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you so much for the Christmas story. We thank you that it's real, that it's history, that there's so much evidence for it, Lord, but we thank you for the gift of faith that enables us to actually not just believe in it, but believe upon the person of Jesus. And Lord, I'd ask for that for all of us today, wherever we are at in our walk with you, that you would give us renewed faith and joy in trusting you and following you. Help us to follow the stars, the clues you give each one of us and help us to let go of our pride and humble ourselves before you and to let you come and fellowship with us, and be born in us, that we might be transformed by you, and we might have a role in transforming others, be set free from sin, and guilt, and shame, and the joy you give us will become infectious across the city of London. We ask in the name of the God who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace